Good Monday evening to you all and welcome to FM 98.5 CKWR's presentation entitled The School of Bishop Sheen. On this week's broadcast, we will share with you a reflection Bishop Sheen gave from one of his parish retreats, and it's entitled, Wasting Your Life. And then for the second half of our hour, we will share another lesson from Bishop Sheen's Catechism series, and the reflection will be on the Mass, and we're on lesson number 30. And so I encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. This little boy came home from Sunday school or catechism class, and his father said to him, What did you learn today? Oh, he said, I learned how Moses defeated the Egyptians. How did he do it? Well, the Egyptians were chasing the Israelites, and Moses called the airfield. And the airfield flew in some engineers, and they built some pontoon bridges over the sea. And the Jews crossed over the pontoon bridges. Then another fleet of planes came, and they bombed the pontoon bridges as the Israelites I mean, the Egyptians were on them, and they were all killed. Father said, is that what they told you? No, he said, it isn't. But if I told you what they really said, you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) And for those that are 39, I must tell them a story, too. I was once talking on prosperity and adversity, and I used the example of flowers. I said some flowers prosper only in sunshine, while others seem to thrive only in the shade, like fuchsias. And afterwards, some woman came to me and she said, that was a wonderful sermon. First time in my life I ever knew what was wrong with my fuchsias. Now, I'm going to talk to you today about working harder, studying harder, living harder, being more wasteful of energy, being more thoughtful of others. And I'm going to begin by telling you that I was once a victim of a roast. You probably have seen some roasts on television in which Someone is made almost the sacrificial lamb and everyone berates him. Well, I was roasted by the Friars Club. And these actors put on a a drama on the stage. And in this drama, I had just gone to the Diocese of Rochester. And the Vicar General was in the room, my secretary, and several priests who had responsible posts in the diocese. And the Holy Father walks in. And he looked exactly like the Holy Father, the one who was playing that part. And he went over and he talked to the Vicar General, whispered to the Chancellor, whispered to the other priests. 
never spoke to me once. And then he left, and I said to them, I said, what did he say? He says, work a hard. <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to tell you, to work a hard. Because really most of us live below the energy, the level of our energy. And in order to be happy, we have to do more. Now, we can do more spiritually and every other way than we are doing, as is proven by hypnotism. There were some men hypnotized and told that their strength was greater than it was before. And do you know that they lifted weights 40% more than they'd ever lifted before they were hypnotized? They just got a new idea in their minds. And then another group of men were hypnotized and, and told that they, or no, the same group. And they were told that they were not as strong as they usually are. And the weights they lifted were 40 pounds less, 40% less. So you see how important it is to have in the mind an idea to do all that you can, to work to the limit of your, your ability. Our world is really suffering from indifference. Indifference is apathy, not caring. I wonder maybe if our Lord does not suffer more from our indifference than he did from the crucifixion. There was a poet of World War I by the name of Studdard Kennedy who gave us a poem in which he compared our Lord coming to Calvary and coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England. And this is what he wrote. And when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him on a tree. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender. They would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. And so it rained. The winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the street... Then Jesus crouched against a wall and sighed for Calvary. In other words, he found the cruelty of Calvary more acceptable than our indifference. I'm going to plead with you, therefore, not to be bored in life. The reason we're bored is because we don't love anything. When you girls get older, you're engaged, the man that you're engaged to will do anything for you. Why? Because he loves you. 
There was a Chicago florist that advertised that your husband still send you flowers. And they had to stop. The husband protested. <laughs> well, there was a reason for not sending flowers after they were married. That's very obvious. But when you're in love, you'll do anything. And you'll find that the young man will do anything for you because he loves. And so will you. You'll wear the kind of clothes he wants. If he likes pink, you'll wear pink. And you won't find it a bit boring. But in order to drive home this lesson, I'm going to take stories out of the Bible. And the first story is to induce you to learn to waste yourself, give yourself to others. We go back to King David. He lived a thousand years before Christ. And King David was in a battle against the Philistines, always the enemies of the Jews, the Philistines. And the battlefront took him to his own home village of Bethlehem. Now, when we get older, we sometimes have yearnings for tastes and visions and experiences when we were young. And so when David saw the town of Bethlehem, he said to the soldiers, Oh, he said, if I could only taste again the waters from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And the soldiers said, all right, we will get you the water. We will drive through the lines. And they came back with water. And David held up the vessel of water and poured it out onto the ground. He said, I am not worthy to drink the water that was purchased at such a sacrifice. He wasted it. Wasted it in the sense that if he drank it, he would not now be remembered and I would not be telling you that story. When we save certain things for ourselves, we spoil them. When we, for example, save our flesh, use it only for our own pleasure, then it becomes lust. We save money. It becomes avarice. We save knowledge. And not use it to train others. It turns into pride. And so David poured out the water as a lesson that sometimes we have to waste the things of life in order to be remembered. Now, another story with the same moral. And here we come to the time of our blessed Lord. He was invited into the house of Simon, the Pharisee. The Pharisees were very self-righteous people. And while he was at dinner with the apostles, a woman comes in the door. Now, you must remember that in those days, it was very easy to come into a banquet room. Anyone could walk into an adjoining house, stand along the wall, you would not eat, but you could listen to the conversation. It was therefore not very unusual 
that a woman should come in to overhear the conversation. But she brought a blush to Simon's cheek. He would not have minded it if anyone else had been there. But the Lord, what would he think of it? The woman was a sinner. And Simon kept saying within himself, if he only knew what kind of a woman she is. I wonder how he knew. (laughs) And the woman comes closely to the feet of our Lord. My young people, you must remember that in those days, people did not sit at table. They leaned at table, as if we leaned here almost on the floor. And you rested your head on your left hand, and then you ate with your right hand from table. That's a custom that sometimes I wish would come back. So the woman comes to the feet of our Lord, and she has some perfume about her neck. In those days, precious perfume was generally carried around the neck. And she stands above the feet of our Lord and lets fall upon those sandaled harbingers of peace a few tears like the first warm drops of a summer rain. And then she was ashamed that she had wet his feet with tears and she wiped them away with her hair. In those days, all women of shame had the hair down. And so it was easy for her with her long hair down at the side to wipe the feet of our blessed Lord. Then she took from about her neck this small vessel of perfume. It was a custom too among the Jews when they went to a funeral to break this perfume bottle over the corpse and then even to drop the broken bottle into the coffin. Now, as she stands above our Lord's feet, she does not do what you and I would do. You and I would pour it out gently, drop by drop, as if to indicate by the slowness of our giving the generosity of our gift. Not those who really love. She just broke the vessel, gave everything. And the house was filled with perfume, says the gospel. So remember, my dear people, this was no smell number five. (laughs) And Judas was there. Judas knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. And he said, why wasn't this saved and given to the poor? But our blessed Lord spoke in favor of the woman. He said, this woman has done this for my burial. Because this incident took place ten days before our Lord was crucified. And 
the gospel writers have kept this story in the gospel, in the gospel, yes, in order that we might again learn to waste, give, break, surrender. As our Lord put it in another occasion, he says, walk the second mile. What did he mean by that, walk the second mile? Well, because very often in those days was mail, when mail was delivered. Suppose they did it here. When mail was delivered, the postman would say, I listen, I've got a heavy load today. Here, you take half these letters. And he had the authority to make you walk the extra mile to deliver mail. And that's what our Lord meant. If anyone, if the postman forces you to walk one mile, walk another. And imagine he also said, if anyone takes your coat, give him your cloak too. Unlimited giving. We would put this in the language of being generous. That bell rings very often, doesn't it? I have a dim feeling that I'm warned up here. <laughs> so when anyone asks you to do things, be prepared to do more. Why, for example, do we get tired? Well, we think we are, we are tired because we have a certain limit of energy. Like we have certain amount of money in the bank. And as that money is spent, or as that energy is used, then we have no more, we're exhausted. No, that's not it always. Energy is renewed if we love. As sanctity and holiness declines, energy declines. Can you imagine, for example, Mother Teresa ever being tired? Here this woman who weighs about 90 pounds, who has dragged 25,000 bodies off the streets of Calcutta and converted 15,000 of them. She never seems to be tired because she gets new strength because she's broken the vessel, poured out her life as David poured out the water. I hope therefore that I can impress you not to be selfish but always to please neighbor, even when they seemingly demand too much. We might even sometimes do the foolish things. And this is the last story that I will tell you about doing foolish things. And you might learn from this that if your faith is very strong, you can do wonders. The scene I'm to describe was on the Lake of Galilee. Our blessed Lord had just multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and the people were excited about it, and they thought, oh, here's a great political king. He can feed the hungry. And they tried to make him a king. And our blessed Lord fled into the mountains alone. Well, his disciples were caught up in this enthusiasm. They liked it. And our Lord did not want them to be burnt with the idea that his kingdom was political. So he said, get into the boat. Go over to the other side of the lake. Get away from these people. This is not the nature of my kingdom. So here's our Lord on a mountaintop. The apostles rowing. 
past midnight in the lake. A storm comes up. They are frightened. Our Lord is praying for them and watching them during the storm. We sometimes think in our trials and difficulties, economic, physical, moral, that the Lord has no concern. That's what they thought, too. But he was watching for the opportune moment. And as the apostles were about to despair, our Lord is seen walking on the water toward them. And they were frightened. They said, it's a ghost. Now, Lord said, be not afraid. It is I. Whenever I use that verse, I'm always reminded of a story that was told of Pope Leo XIII. Someone asked to paint his portrait, and it was not very well done. But it was brought to Pope Leo, and he had to sign it. But he signed it in Latin. Noli timere ego sum. Do not fear, it is I. <laughs> Our Lord, therefore, is telling his apostles, Now, do not fear, it is I. Here we come to a great act of faith. Peter loves our Lord. And I'm telling you that if you love, you will go on doing things, not stop. And Peter loved our Lord. He wanted to be with him. He couldn't wait until he came to the boat. And he said, bid me come on the waters to you. Imagine that. Peter loved our Lord so much that he thought, well, I can walk on water. Now, can you imagine what must have happened in that boat at the moment that Peter lifts his foot about to step into the water? What do you think happened? His brother Andrew must have said, Peter, listen, you're always an idiot. Thomas must have said, what are you trying to do, join a circus? Judas said, how much money are you getting for this? And on and on they ridiculed, get back, you idiot, get back. But he walked. He walked on the waters. And why did he walk? Was it foolish? No, our Lord had said, come, come. Believe the impossible and you can do the incredible. Or believe the incredible and you can do the impossible. Believe the things that are almost impossible. And if you've got faith, they will come true. Our Lord has said, come, and Peter walked on the water. But then he began to sink. Why did he sink? Because Peter knew how to swim. Someday when you learn the gospel better, I will ask you the question, how do you know Peter could swim? 
as I might ask you the question, who could run faster in a race, Peter or John? Did you know that's in the gospel? When you get it back to school and you're studying scripture, I hope, I hope, I hope, in your catechism, find out who can run faster, Peter or John. I'm not going to tell you. But the answer is in the Bible. And so here, our Lord has said to Peter, come and he walked, but now he sinks. Peter could swim because we know that on the Sunday after Easter, Peter swam 400 yards. That's in the gospel too. Why did he sink if he could swim? The gospel tells us the reason. He took his eyes off the Lord. He began to take account of the winds. He said, oh, nature's against me. Or in our language today, in our sociological world, Peter began to take account of sociological surveys. And he sank. He took his eyes off the Lord. And so the Lord then took hold of his hand and said, Oh, man of little faith, why don't you believe? And then Peter was taken into the boat and our Lord took them to shore. So if you have faith, the impossible things can be done. I'll tell you a story about football that was told me by Coach Paterno of Penn State. Those of you who don't like football, close your ears and God have mercy on you. <laughs> coach Paterno is the coach of Penn State and a few years ago his team was playing the University of Kansas. Now Coach Paterno has an old mother an Italian mother full of faith knows absolutely nothing about football. But she has two sons who coach football. One coaching at Penn State and the other coaching the Merchant Marine in Connecticut. The score of the football game, 50 seconds before the end of the game, was Kansas 14, Penn State 7. The other son who coached in Connecticut was with the mother and he said to his mother, Mom, it's all finished. Joe is lost. And she said, no. I'll go in the bathroom and pray. I don't know why she went into the bathroom to pray, but at any rate, that's the story. She went into the bathroom. She said, I'll go in the bathroom and pray. Now this, now picture this good good old lady going into the bathroom to pray to the good Lord. What happens now in the remaining seconds? Penn State threw a touchdown, and the score, boys, what was the score now with the touchdown? 14 to what? No. 13, right. 14 to 13. To make it 14, what do they have to do? Pick a field goal. Would there be any other way of making extra points? forward 
Yes, or run through the line. Yes, there will be another way. Well, they decided not to kick the field goal because that would mean a tie, 14 to 14. So they tried a forward to get behind the goal line, and that would count two points and make the score 15 to 14. They tried it, and they missed. But Kansas was offside, so they had to try it over again. And the next time they made it, well, her son screamed. And he shouted out, Mom, they've won! And she came out and she said, I told you, I told you. <laughs> so you see, you believe, believe the incredible and you can do the impossible. And it would seem as if Coach Joe Paterno's wisdom had won the game, but actually it was the mother. <laughs> now my time is up. Oh, yes. Listen, my good, my good people, it's always better for you to say, I wished he had talked longer than to have you say he had three good chances to quit. I hope now that you'll carry away from this talk two lessons. First of all, I hope the women will become interested in football. That'll help, won't it? <laughs> and secondly, be generous with yourself. Just give, give, give. And as we give, we get. This is the gospel lesson. As we pour out ourselves, God gives us strength. Now, for example, we know... Let me tell you, when I came over here, I was dead tired. I didn't want to talk. I didn't feel like it. So I said to the good Lord, I'm tired now, and I'm going to talk on using strength. Spend yourself. Give me strength. Do I look tired? No. <laughs> Thank you. All right, now everybody be generous, generous with self. I know that when I go now that Monsignor is going to talk about being generous in other ways. <laughs> but I mean being generous with yourself, your energy, your kindness to others, your charity, your helpfulness, because then you will be real Christians. This friend of mine that I told you who was in the prison for 14 years, when he got out of prison in Romania, he was walking along the street and found a boy, and he said, do you believe in Christ? And the boy said, no. Why don't you? The little boy says, you think Christ is God, don't you? Well, now, if Christ is God, if Jesus is God, he can do what God does. God made flowers. Flowers made other flowers. God made elephants. Elephants made other elephants. And nobody's ever given me anything. And if Jesus is God, then he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. But I've never found another Jesus. My father's an alcoholic. My mother takes in washing to live. Nobody's ever given me a toy or a suit of clothes. Therefore, I don't believe that Jesus is God. 
because he never made any other Jesus. And Dr. Wormbrand said, but isn't your pastor? Well, no, he said he's not. He's not. When this pastor was told, he said, oh, that boy is silly. He wasn't silly. He was right. So if Jesus is God, he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. That's what you are. Other Jesuses. And you ought to so manifest him in your lives that as you move among others, they will say of you as the maidservant said of Peter, Thou hast been with Christ. Thank you, and God love you. Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for the School of Sheen, uh, the time each week where we uh, take a little break from the busyness of the world and we learn our faith once again. You know, Bishop Sheen spoke to millions and millions of people each and every week on radio and television and uh, the retreats that he gave and the reflections. And it is a great privilege for me to share those recordings with you uh, every week here. And I want to thank uh, my good friends at FultonSheen.com who have made these recordings available to us to share. And uh, their website is uh, just what I call an oasis of Sheen recordings. Uh, You'll visit FultonSheen.com. And there they have what I call the world-famous Bishop Sheen app for your iPhone and Android. And I have so many friends and acquaintances that have downloaded that app and uh, listened to Fulton Sheen on their cell phone, going to work, coming home. uh, And, uh, you know, there is literally hundreds of hours of recordings there. And, uh, of course, their uh, website is easy to navigate. Uh, they have well over 300 recordings that uh, you can purchase from them, download them, uh, just pennies per uh, recording, and they've taken the time to remaster them. Uh, you know, of course, from listening to me for years, I'll put on some of the old recordings that have the crackles in them, the snaps and the pops. Uh, you know, they've cleaned them up a great deal. So, again, a very easy site to remember, FultonSheen.com. Now, we're going to continue with our catechism series, and we've been learning the faith together, and, uh, you know, I say many times, a lot of us are functioning at a grade two catechism. Uh, We learned our faith early in our lives, and uh, there wasn't really the upgrade course. Uh, Some of us remember our confirmation classes, uh, but I think we remember uh, the good nuns teaching us when we were younger, or that great catechist uh, at church. Uh, But it's always good to renew our faith, review the course, and uh, really understand what we believe. And you'll really find a great joy of knowing the truth. And so we're on Lesson 30, and we're going to share uh, Bishop Sheen's reflections on the Mass. And so I ask you once again to just sit back and relax and enjoy this reflection. Peace be to you. A great American patriot once said that he regretted he had only one life to give for his country. He meant that his love was greater than his sacrifice. That his life could be given only once in time and therefore could not be repeated. 
It is very different with the life of our Lord. Though the life was given once, it is eternally given. And it is eternally given and repeated in the sacrifice of the Mass. In this lesson, we are going to describe the Mass in terms of three of its principal parts. The offertory, the consecration, the communion. First, the offertory. This takes place when the priest offers bread and wine to God. Our blessed Lord, at that moment, if we may draw an image, is looking out from heaven saying, I cannot die again in the human nature that I took from Mary. That human nature is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. The pledge and the promise of what your human nature is to be. But I can die in you and you can die in me. Will you therefore offer yourselves to me? I can add nothing to the sacrifice of my love except by and through you. Now we begin to offer ourselves to him under the species of bread and wine. Let me tell you how this was done in the early church. If you would have come to Mass in the early church, you would have brought some bread and wine. You also might have brought some linen, fruits, wheat, oil, wool, and other things that were needed by the religious community, that is, by the church. The priest would have taken all of these gifts, piled them up at the side of the communion rail, to distribute them to the poor after Mass. But the bread and wine which was brought, he would take some of that and use that for the offertory of the Mass. Now we no longer bring either bread and wine, nor do we bring these other things. Simply because today we live in a modern world where money is the medium of exchange. Instead of bringing bread and wine, we bring that which equivalently buys bread and wine. The important thing is that when we offer ourselves to God, we do so under the appearances of bread and wine. Why did our blessed Lord use bread and wine as the symbols of our offertory? I can immediately think of three reasons. First, in order to signify our unity with one another and in him in the mystical body of Christ. Just as a unity of grains of wheat make bread. And just as wine is made up from many grapes, so too we who are many are one in Christ. That is the first reason. Another reason is... Perhaps no two substances in nature traditionally have so much nourished man as bread and wine. Bread is the marrow of the earth. Wine, it's very blood. In bringing bread and wine, therefore, we are bringing those substances 
which have most nourished ourselves, given us life. Therefore, we are equivalently offering our lives or ourselves on the altar. A third reason, wheat and grapes have to suffer a great deal in order to become bread and wine. Wheat has to pass through a winter, and then it has to be subjected to a mill and to fire before the wheat can ever become bread. Grapes, in their turn, have to pass through the Gethsemane of a wine press before they can become wine. So too we who offer ourselves to Christ are destined to sacrifice. Therefore let us take those substances from nature which have given us life but which indicate in their very being the need of sacrificing and suffering in order to be united with Christ himself. We, therefore, at the moment of the offertory of the Mass, are not passive spectators, as we might be in the theater. We are going to be actors in a great drama. We are standing, as it were, on the pattern that the priest is offering. We are in that chalice. We are participants. We are co-offerers to Christ, through him to the Heavenly Father. If therefore we understand the offertory, we realize now that we have offered ourselves. That brings us to the question, what happens to us? The answer to that is given in the consecration. Priest, it will be recalled, is only the instrument of Christ himself at the altar. Christ is the priest, Christ is the victim. When, therefore, the priest pronounces the words of consecration, he is only giving, loaning to our blessed Lord his voice and his hands. At the moment of consecration, the priest says over the bread, This is my body. And over the chalice of wine, this is my blood. At that moment, there takes place what is known as the mystery of transubstantiation. Trans means across. Substantiation refers to substance. This mystery means that the whole substance of the bread becomes the whole substance of the body of Christ. The whole substance of the wine becomes the whole substance of the blood of Christ. Notice we use the word substance. Now just as a subject has predicate, Just as your personality wears clothes which are purely accidental to your personality because you can change clothes, so too bread and wine have what are known as accidents or appearances or predicates or species. Now, after the moment of consecration, the bread looks the same as it did before. The wine looks the same. That is to say, the sensible appearances do not change, but the substance 
of the bread changes. The substance of the wine changes into the body and blood of Christ. How do we know they change? Because our Lord said so. Is there any better reason in the world? Our blessed Lord said, this is my body. This is my blood. The next question is, very well, we have offered ourselves with Christ. And the consecration is a repeating, a bringing up to date, localizing, a representation of the death of Christ. How is the death of Christ represented in the consecration? Well, notice that the priest does not consecrate the bread and wine together. He does not say, this is the body and blood of Christ. First he consecrates the bread, then he separately consecrates the wine. First, this is my body, then this is my blood. Now notice that that separate consecration is a kind of cleavage, a tearing asunder a kind of a mystical sword that divides the blood from the body of Christ and that is how he died on Calvary. That is why the Mass is called the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary while Calvary itself was a real separation of blood from body. Not that this is any less real, but that it is not as sensibly presented as it was on the cross. But this is not the whole story of the consecration. Remember we offered ourselves under bread and wine? See what has happened to the bread and wine? It's the body and blood of Christ. But Christ is not alone in the Mass. We are with him. What therefore happened to us? We died with Christ. The words of consecration, therefore, have a secondary meaning. The primary meaning is very clear, that we've given. This is the body and blood of Christ. Mystically divided by that separate consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord renews the sacrifice of Calvary. The vine sacrificed himself on the cross. The vine and branches, which we are, now sacrifice themselves in the Mass. So the secondary meaning of the words of consecration is about the branches united to the vine. So we say to our Lord, really, this is my body. This is my blood. All that I am. My body, my blood, my intellect, my will, all of my desires, intentions and motivations, all that I am substantially, are now thine. I die with thee, divinize them, transubstantiate them, change them, so that I am no longer mine but thine. Oh, the species of my life, the mere accidents, what I do in life, my peculiar duties, 
Let them remain. They are only the appearances. But what I am in my essential relationships to thee, that make divine. I die with thee, O Christ, on count. That is the consecration. Now we come to the communion. Remember that in the offertory, we were like lambs that were being led on to Jerusalem. And in the consecration, we are those lambs who were offered in sacrifice. Now in communion, we find that actually we did not lose anything at all. We did not die. We recovered life. We die to the lower part of ourselves in the consecration of the Mass, and we get back our souls ennobled and enriched. We begin to be free and exalted. We find that our death was no more permanent than the consecration than was the death of Christ on Calvary. In Holy Communion, we surrender our humanity, we get back his divinity. We give up time, he gives us his eternity. We give up our sin, we die to it, he gives us his grace. We surrender our self-will and receive the divine will. We give up petty loves. He gives us the very flame of love itself. That is communion. Now, because communion is so very important, we want to dwell on three particular aspects of Holy Communion. First, Holy Communion incorporates us to the life of Christ. Two, Holy Communion incorporates us to the death of Christ. Three, Holy Communion incorporates us to the members of the mystical body and their joys and sorrows. First, in Communion, we have unity with the life of Christ. That is to say, the whole Christ. Christ born in Bethlehem, the Christ who lived in Galilee, who taught, who suffered, died, rose from the dead, is at the right hand of the Father, and is infusing his life into his mystical body. We receive that divine life in communion. Our blessed Lord said, He that eateth me, the same shall live by me. Actually, we do not so much receive him. As strictly speaking, he receives us. We become incorporated to him. There's a kind of a transfusion. Just in the physical order, as there is transfusion of blood or life, so to here there's a tremendous transfusion of divine life into our souls in communion. And that is why at communion we always have such a deep sense of unworthiness. And the communion prayer is Domine non sum dignus. O Lord, I am not worthy. Is it not true that in human love the beloved is always on the pedestal, the lover always on his knees, and so in divine love? We protest our unworthiness as we go to the communion rail to receive the divine life 
because we died to our lower life in the consecration. Divine lover invites us to his banquet. We poor, destitute creatures. He holds us in his embrace. Really, if our faith were strong, we would crawl on our hands and knees to the communion rail. And apropos of that life, our Lord said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives continually in me, and I live continually in him. Secondly, communion is not only incorporation to the life of Christ, it is also incorporation to the death of Christ. Here is something that we very seldom think of. We always think of communion as a relationship of life, but as a relationship of death. St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, It is the Lord's death you are heralding whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup. Why is there a death involved? Simply because we have not yet passed into glory. We have our old Adam with us. All of our sins, all of our concupiscences, our pride and covetousness and avarice. And we have to die to all of these. As the consecration itself suggested. When the farmer plows corn, he's very interested in life. But he's uprooting weeds, is he not? In other words, the condition of having the life of the corn is to bring death to the weeds, and the condition of having life of Christ is to bring death to the old Adam? Does not the gardener, when he nourishes the flower and cares for it, battle against insects? And in order to protect this divine life, we too have to bring some kind of penance and self-denial to that which is lower. Furthermore, if our Lord died for us, then we have to die to ourselves. And notice that after the resurrection, it was the relics of his passion and his death that he showed men. Mary Magdalene wanted to achieve that glory of the resurrection, and our Lord said, Do not touch me. But he said to Thomas, Touch my hand. Put thy finger into my hand. Put thy hand into my side. In other words, Thomas, you may commune with my death to see that I am the risen life. I believe that is the reason why the church ordains fasting before communion. In order to be sure that at least we will be incorporated in some tiny little way to the death of Christ before we receive his life. The third point concerning communion is that communion is not only incorporation to the life of Christ, incorporation to his death, but it is also communion with all of the other members of the mystical body of Christ. This is what we forget. That when we receive communion, we are being united with every other member of the church throughout the world. Your body, for example, is made up of millions and millions of cells. These cells are nourished by blood plasma 
or lymph. It courses through all the gates and alleys of your body to nourish and repair. It knocks at the door of each individual cell. It offers its treasure. Now what that blood plasma does to your human body is a faint, far-off echo of what our Lord does for his mystical body. The mystical body is made up of persons, not cells. Instead of human, human nourishment, there is the divine life of the Eucharist. And this Eucharist is the divine lymph, as it were, of all of the cells or persons of the mystical body of Christ. And as St. Paul says, the one bread makes us one body, though we be many in number, the same bread is shared by all. The lymph makes the body one, the Eucharist makes the church one. The communion rail is therefore the most democratic institution in the face of all history. We are communing therefore at the rail, not only with every member of the church, but with the joys of the church wherever they are in any part of the world, and also with the sorrows of the church, the trials and persecutions, for example, in mission lands. Therefore, every communion will make us more and more conscious of helping the society of the propagation of the faith in order that this body of Christ may grow and in order that we may be more conscious of our communion one with another in the body of Christ. That is the Mass. And thanks to it, we have the real presence. Our Lord is on the altar. Think of what our churches would be if we did not have that red tabernacle lamp telling us that our blessed Lord was there in his Eucharistic presence. We would just be meeting houses, prayer halls, that's all. We would almost feel that we were standing alongside of the empty tomb of Easter morn and an angel were there saying, he is not here. But thanks to the real presence of our Lord in our churches, the Eucharist is the window between heaven and earth. Thanks to the real presence, we look out to heaven. And heaven looks down to us. That is why we can pray better there. We are praying before our Lord. Our Lord is just as really and truly present in the blessed sacrament as I am present before this microphone as I speak to you. Although the manner of presence is different, but it is the Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our love. God love Good Monday evening to you all, and thank you once again for joining me for the School of Sheen. I encourage you to bring a friend along with you next week, and I want to thank once again our friends at FultonSheen.com for providing us with such quality recordings uh, from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We encourage you to visit their website at fultonsheen.com and purchase uh, these uh, audio recordings for your cell phone, computer, tablets, and digital devices. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.